This is your host, Jim Thompson. And before we get rolling on today's podcast, I want to dedicate this episode to my sister, Cindy Thompson, who was recently diagnosed with cancer. This interview is right on time. Not only does it describe a woman who's overcome cancer twice and earned a law degree at 50, but it breaks down what it means to be strong. And I can tell you there's no one stronger than my sister. But I hope this provides fuel for her or anyone else facing a challenge later in life, because I think these words might help. I think of myself as a strong person. But being a strong person doesn't mean you ignore the obvious weaknesses that are there. You deal with them. And that was the hardest thing for me to really embrace. The holistic view of what it means to be strong. It's not just, you know, yeah, I can tough it out through this. It's seeing something that seems insurmountable, acknowledging it, and deciding, can I surmount that? Can I make it happen? That's what I had to, I would say rebuild, but it was really probably for the first time in my life that I understood what it truly meant to be a strong person. Welcome to the Great and Famous Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Thompson, and together we share your stories of the everyday people that changed your life. We reconnect you with your greatest influence, recognize their generosity and lessons, and inspire others to do the same. It's practical wisdom from people you never heard of, a.k.a. The Great and Famous. Welcome to The Great and Famous. I'm your host, Jim Thompson. Uh, thank you for spending time with us today because we're going to meet a woman whose story proves that it's never too late. Never too late to make a change, to overcome an obstacle, and to overcome that obstacle again. We're going to unpack that shortly. If this is your first visit, you should know that The Great and Famous is not just a podcast about unfamous people. In fact, many of them are well-known or even famous in their areas of expertise. But this show is about talking to exceptional people who took the time to leave their mark on others and discovering the often unfamous people who left a mark on them. That's it. Lessons from remarkable givers plus the person who helped pave the way for them. So my next guest represents, in my opinion, the largest segment of underrated human beings on the planet, and that is mothers. We talk a lot about givers on this podcast, but my guest typifies the best traits of the mother mentality, and that is sacrifice, grit, positivity. Now, I'll bet Nancy Vincel will list her two children as among her greatest accomplishments. Mm -hmm. In fact, you heard from her daughter, Ashley Hurd, on episode 21, that shared her mom was the most important force in her life. But Nancy has also overcome cancer twice, has run a marathon, earned a law degree at the age of 50, and is now general counsel for the Kentucky Public Service Commission. So today we're going to learn what it takes to evolve from a mother at 20 to an attorney at 50, and why age, motherhood, and even cancer could not prevent Nancy from pursuing her dreams. Nancy, thank you so much for joining me today. It's thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I, I hear it myself. I think, huh, who, me? It's funny. We, I, I've talked about this a number of times on the podcast. Um, a lot of podcasts do this, do the intro after we do the interview. And mm -hmm. so I can, you know, talk about what we covered. I like to do it in advance because people should hear 
about how other people think of them. In fact, Ashley mentioned this in, in our podcast, is it, it's really important for people to hear how other people think of them and the value that other people see they create. Um, because it's just one of those conversations you don't have. People don't say this that often. And so that's why I think it's an important setup for people to start to hear the impact they have on others because it encourages them to do it again and more often. So thank you. Thank you for joining. When I think of mothers, I think about sacrifice. And so I always tell the story about, you know, my mom, I grew up with a family of four kids and one of the hot dogs falls on the floor. And what do you think the four kids do? I'm not eating that. I'm not, I'm not touching that. And so my mother, don't worry, I'll eat the hot dog that fell on the floor. It's one of those little stories that always sticks with me, but it's just that, that thought of mothers always sacrificing. So can you talk about a little bit what it was like to be a mother at such a young age and what you thought your life's path would be at that point? Well, I can tell you when I, when I became a mother, that was not what I, how I envisioned my life going. I, I, had, I was still in college at the time that we got married. And I saw myself finishing my college career, you know, getting either a master in library science or a law degree and becoming a mother down the road. So when I became a mother, it was that moment of, oh, okay, what am I going to do next? Uh, it was not what I envisioned at all. And I did try to go back to school after, before my daughter Ashley was born and after my son Sean was born. I went for one semester, had a wonderful time, but thought, this isn't really working for me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm wearing too many hats and I'm not enjoying all of them. So, you know, my husband and I talked long and hard, made some decisions, and I decided I was just going to defer going back to school or working. I was going to focus on being a mother for a while. We were, it was a struggle, but we figured how we could make it happen. And, but I always knew that I would be going back to school at some point, that it worked for all of us. And, and that's what I did. When Ashley got to be right before kindergarten, my youngest daughter, I started back at college on a part-time basis. Uh, went part-time until Ashley was in school full-time, picked up more hours. Didn't get my undergraduate degree until she was in third grade. I still have this memory of um, Ashley, both of my kids, Sean and Ashley, developed chicken pox, and it was on a day of my final I couldn't find anybody to watch them. My husband had a meeting he had to go to. So there the kids were in the back of the car. I, it's like an eight o'clock final. I go in early to the professor say, look, I'm really sorry. My kids are sick, they're in the car. I have 15 minutes, can I take my final now? And he let me, you know, so, and I do, and I do well. I will say that, which still remember. But that, those are the kinds of bumps she hit along the way. And you figure out how to make them work. But I also knew when I went into that final, okay, so if he doesn't let me take the final, what does that mean? I get a bad grade or I flunk the class. I have to take it over. Okay, that's what happens. you know. And I think that's part of the wane all the time of what's the worst that's going to happen here and can I live with it? Have you always had that kind of attitude? No. That of I'm going to do the best I can do and if it doesn't work out, then we'll adjust, or is that something you developed over time? I definitely developed it over time. I, I used to be more of a warrior, you know, kind of expecting the best, not not really knowing, kind of getting captured in negative thoughts. And I, it was really when I became a mother that 
you can't spend your life doing that. And it, it evolved for me of, okay, this, this is what we're going to do one step at a time. It didn't happen overnight. It, it took many years to get to that point. So that the, the education that motherhood teaches you is incredibly valuable. There's no degree, but it, it takes about 20 years, right? <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> at least. <laughs> but now I'm a grandmother, and I enjoy that even more than I ever enjoyed being a mother, and I love being a mother. The nicest part is because I can bring all this wisdom, and of course, I don't have to deal day to day with things, but things just don't bother me at all as a grandmother. And yeah. as, as I think, think everybody knows, I'm, I'm more often to say, I will only say no if the parents absolutely make me say no, or if it's completely dangerous. In, in the way you described how you thought your path was going to evolve and how it did, it's almost the reverse, right? You thought you would go to school, you'd build your, you'd build your career, then you'd have kids, and it flipped, right? You're gonna have kids first, and then you're gonna build your career. Have you thought ever thought about like, what do you think would have happened if it had happened differently? Do you think you would have ended up in the same basic uh, destination? Or do you think it would have been significantly different if you'd had kids later? I, I genuinely think it would be different. It, it's funny, one of, uh, one of the, the commissioners at our commission said to me once, you know, if I had gone to law school and followed, followed a more traditional path, he thought I would have been like the managing partner of one of the biggest law firms in town and was talking about that. And I have to say, that sounded horribly unappealing to me. I'm really happy with the things worked out. It, it wasn't what I planned, but everything has worked out incredibly well for me. I'm loving everything I get to do. Sometimes too much gets in the way, like my work. I love my work. People will say, are you ready to retire? And I think, in some ways I am, but no, I love what I do. I love, I get to spend a lot of time with my family and I'm young enough and I'm fit enough that I can do the things I want to do. My, my grandkids think of me as somebody who will go race with them. Uh, you know, we'll have running races and I can do that. Before my surgery and cancer, I did it better than I can do it now. Definitely, we definitely want to talk about that, that journey and that battle uh, that you faced. What's interesting too is you talk about that plan. Like it didn't, it wasn't the plan you had. It's not how you intended it to be, but it worked out to your benefit. I think I've had that in my life too. Like where I've I've had things that I, I things that have happened where I'm like, oh, I really wish that hadn't happened, and then I realized down the road, like, oh my God, that's exactly what needed to happen. That I needed that for me to go where I am now, and so that the faith of Adjusting to what is in front of you is so much more powerful than trying to plan what is in front of you. Before we jump into that, can you talk a little bit about, you mentioned that you have a particularly nerdy sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Yes. Can you talk about how that's served you? It showed up with Ashley as well. But can you talk about how that served you and how, how it played a, a role when you met your husband? Um, yeah, yes. Uh, Happily, my, my husband is just as nerdy as I am, but it wasn't as apparent to me early on. We, we were on our second date, and we, were, we had just been canoeing. We had stopped at a fast food restaurant, picked up some soft drinks. We were sitting in the car just talking. And I was maybe not even halfway through mine, and I was done with it. And Jack said something, and you know, I was offering it to him, do you want the rest? My husband thought, okay, sure, but he didn't want to just lift the lid off and pour it in. 
He spent 20 minutes devising the suction system to get the soft drink from my cup into his. And the whole time I was ridiculously enchanted and I absolutely fell in love then and there and thought, here's someone who's creative, patient, scientific. And this is the craziest thing. He could have just poured the soft drink from one cup to another. It was 20 minutes of this. <laughs> that to me just captured both me and Jack, right, right there in that moment, that he would take the time to do it. And that I would think it was the most amazing, wonderful thing. Um, yeah, I'd love to see that that science experiment. I'm not even sure how to do that. I'm trying to empty a pool right now. I think I would probably <laughs> use your husband to understand how suction works. There, there you go. It's, it's funny because I was just talking to him the other day going, I know, I'm trying to remember what all we did. He could tell me like that what he did. It's funny what we learn, right? Mm -hmm. the, the different places we find it. And, and that's what we, I always try to extract that, as much of that out of these conversations as possible, things that we learn. This is something I like to do. I like to do five things. Five things that I'll ask you um, a little rapid fire learning. I'll give you five topics and you just describe, you know, one thing you learned about yourself from, from that. Okay. Marathons. Strength. Strength and perseverance. Do you want more? Yeah, go on. So um, it, for 2014, my 10th my anniversary of the, my diagnosis with leukemia, I decided I had to do something big to celebrate that I'd reached that point in time. And I decided I was going to run a marathon. I'd been running, and I was running half marathons. I really thought a marathon was way beyond me. And, and in many ways, it was. I'm not a fast runner. I'm not a great runner. Um, but I don't give up. The process was great. I had two friends that I trained with, one who was training for a marathon, too, and one who said she never wanted to run a, a marathon. But she ran up to 18, 20 miles with us. It was great. The, the day that of the marathon, I had some other friends that were there. It was really amazing for me because about halfway through, I developed leg cramps. But I was able to work through them at that point. And like right up through mile 23, I was going, I felt so good. I felt better than I ever would have thought anybody could feel at running 23 miles. Right around mile 24, leg cramps started in again so that the last mile, I could run 15 seconds, and that was it. My leg just seized up. So I'm like limping in, running a little bit, limping in. But I, I crossed the finish line, and it was just that wonderful moment of I really, I did this. It was a, a little over six hours, which I still think, hey, I ran for six hours. Not something people brag about. I got to that point, and I thought, you know, those last two miles were awful and brutal, but I never once thought, I can't do this. Even when I really, really, I mean, even walking, it was just, it was, I'm sure, painful for people to see me. But at the end of it, I, I just felt like I, I knew I had accomplished something. I didn't want to run another one, but, and I still don't, but I did it. I, I set out to do something and I thought, can I really do this? And I did it. For me, what happened during the marathon has informed so many other things because I think about how much of life is just like a marathon. You, you do all the training ahead of time and you just have to trust that you've prepared yourself for it and then put one foot in front of the other. Okay, next one, courthouse ghosts. When, when I was in law school, I, I was a student, because I was a former librarian, I was an intern at, for one of the law school librarians. And that was one of the research that we had to do was courthouse ghosts. And the whole time I thought, 
I have to do this because I said I would, but ugh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to think about courthouse ghosts. Did you learn anything from that? Um, that that I was just going to smile and do it because I had faith in the professor who wanted me to do it. That's the only thing I learned from that. You don't like ghosts? I don't like ghosts. I I don't like ghosts. I I have this horrible feeling of, you know, things being haunted. It's like, I just, ugh. Have you ever had an encounter? Um, I, I once had an encounter that I thought probably was a ghost. And then I thought, oh, are you just crazy here? It's like, surely it's something else. But yeah, it was just that feeling of these realms coming together. It's like, this is, this is too much for me right now. <laughs> you can tell your visceral reaction here. Uh, the next is law school. What, what did you learn from going to law school versus what you learned in law school? Gosh, so, so many things again. Part of it is something I already knew, but got affirmed. And that's that you really don't get anywhere in life without supporting others and being supported by others. And I think that was so true in law school in so many ways. Simply like on the home front, it was just my husband and I at the time, and we had worked out a schedule. Basically, my husband did everything. And I just would come home to sleep and eat whatever was cooked and go back. But I had his support all the way to just focus on what I was doing. But in school, working with others, talking things through, that mutual exchange of, you know, okay, is this, this is what I understand something to be. Is that what you understand something to be, working together? Um, but the other part for me is what I really learned most about myself was that the things that I truly believe are, are valuable in life are what valuable. Again, your experiences, your time with other, how you approach others, how you, how you deal with the world, how you walk through the world. That's what matters more than anything else. And that's a funny thing to learn in law school, but it got affirmed for me. Uh, because I, I wasn't, I didn't go into law school thinking, oh, I have to get the top grades. You know, that's all I care about. I had to get the top grades. I want to work in this kind of a job. That's what I wasn't going for. You know, I knew at my age, there were a lot of things that weren't going to be realistic for me. I wasn't going to go somewhere and build up a massive book of business knowing that I wasn't in my 20s or 30s and had a considerable amount of time in front of me to practice law. So I, I knew there were certain things I wanted, certain things I didn't. But again, that, that affirmation of what matters most in the world and discovering that in law school was right. another learning experience for me. How about being published in the New York Times? That, that was such an unusual thing for me to do at the time I did it. There, there was, it, was, um, it was in the spring of 2005, so um, nine months after I'd been diagnosed with leukemia. And that had been a really rough journey. And I don't think I really appreciated how rough it was until I read this opinion piece in the New York Times Magazine by somebody who had the same type of leukemia as I did, who talked about the recovery from the process in terms of exercise and running and how by returning to running, she returned to herself. And that was the first time I really, it hit me. This is exactly right. I have. I just felt like this walking diagnosis. Oh, I have acute promyositic leukemia. Because everything that I did was shaped around it. I had to watch my interactions with people. 
where I can go, things I ate. And during this time, I had been walking to, to get back to my strength. And around the time this opinion was published, I had just started a very slow jogging pace on the treadmill. And it just clicked with me. And I thought, I have, to, I have to reach out. I have to reach out to thank this person because she said what I felt and it made me realize something. And I have to acknowledge it. I can't let it go without commenting on it. And I think that's also the time that I first started realizing you have to make that extra effort to let people know you appreciate them or they, they've done something. Um, give them that feedback, that positive affirmation. So that's why that was unusual for me. But it was also, I'm really glad I did it because it was, it opened a box for me of a new way to think of things. All right. Well, the last one's Jack. Oh, you know, my, my Bashir, my rock. Um, I feel like, I feel like falling in love with Jack Vinsel was the whole start of my life in many ways. I'm such a different person because of him. My husband and I are completely different. Um, He's far more reserved than I am. Physically, he's way taller than I am. He's more reserved. He's very athletic. But the things that he's, he's brought me, not just in terms of the love and support that I get from him, and that's been massive. The, our children, our life together. Small things. The Boston Red Sox. Um, I, love, I love baseball. I love baseball. I grew up a Reds fan. Um, I will say when Marge Schott took over, some of her antics really offended yeah. me. And it was just hard to get behind the Reds. And my husband spent, his father was in the Navy, moved to uh, New England when he was in his teens. Red Sox fan, like nobody's business. I'm a huge Red Sox fan. Oh, oh my gosh. Well, in 1982, we went to Fenway. And I remember just walking up the ramp and seeing the field. It was like, I found my heart again. So since 1982, I have been a massive Red Sox fan. I did not know that. Yes. Yes, which also then when I was going through my treatment in 2004, the whole journey of the Red Sox winning the World Series. Sometimes I was in the hospital for one of the games and I'd had uh, issues I won't go into, but I wasn't allowed to leave my room. So I was walking around my room, spending the entire day watching playoff games. I was watching Pedro Martinez pitch a game and he's one of my favorite all-time players. And watching him just gave me that strength of purpose so when the procedure came around and it wasn't a fun one, I'm like, I can do this. So, you know, in that way, just that, that spillover. We love to travel. We have very similar tastes and things we like to do that way when we travel. He's far more of a risk. I, I'm a risk taker, but he's a risk taker when we travel. I, 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 so I could go on. I shouldn't do this. I could spend an well, hour. Yeah. Like what, what, what would you say? One, what's one of the things that you learned from him? Truly love. Unconditional love. Unconditional love. Well, Nancy, look, can you talk about how you've dealt with not one, but two cancer diagnosis, diagnoses? And what was your reaction the first time versus your reaction the second time? Well, the, the first time with the leukemia, I was... Um, I was ridiculously ill. I had um, no immune system. When I went to the hospital, how they discovered it, I'd been on a second round of what looked like pneumonia, and I went and got a chest X-ray. And before I even got in my car in the parking lot, the tech was running out saying, "Your doctor needs you to go to Baptist right now. You have fluid in your lungs." 
So I was in the hospital for a couple of days um, before I was diagnosed with leukemia. I was so shocked. I, I will say my father had passed away from leukemia and some of my symptoms reminded me of his, but I thought, oh, come on, Nancy, you don't, come on, not that me, come on, just stop. I knew before they told me that I had leukemia because I knew when they did the bone marrow aspiration, it all clicked for me. This was probably leukemia. I didn't know what type, I didn't know anything. I, I wasn't ready for it at all. I, I still remember when I went to the hospital, they had to put me on a different unit just because where they had a room. So I remember when they wheeled me onto the oncology unit and I was, if I had been any stronger, I would have jumped out of that bed because I still remember clinging to the rails when I you know, go in and there's this big sign oncology as you're walking into the unit. And I really wanted to say, stop, you're, I, there's a mistake here. Somebody's made a mistake. It's a horrible mistake. Stop, let me out, stop. So at least like overnight. So I went in like late in the afternoon. It was the next morning that I got my official diagnosis. So it was shocking. I knew it was coming in a way. I just didn't know what it was. And the diagnosis I had, the type I had was very rare at the time. They just had recent treatment for it. Nobody used the word cure. But it was also bam, bam, bam. They gave me the diagnosis of we have to start this treatment now. We had to first go down. They had to do some tests to make sure my heart was okay. So it was almost like I didn't have time to think about it right away. And it wasn't really until, well, the next morning when I was in the room by myself, and I thought, holy cow, I'm going to die. This is crazy. Because I was in my 40s. I thought, this, this is crazy. How can this be? And... Uh, Happily, I had said to Jack, could you bring me a notebook? I want to write some thoughts. I, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this. I just want to write some things down. And that helped me. Um, it was a slow process. I knew I was going to have to adapt fast because we were just going fast. I uh, shaved my head way before I started chemo because I knew I was going to lose my hair. I thought, let's just be done with it. So in that way, it was dual process of dealing with what I had and dealing with what I had. Because there was, I was in the hospital for two months. There was a whole lot going on all the time, way too much drama, we won't get into it. The one thing, and this is very typical of me, because I was there for two months, and I couldn't leave, I couldn't leave the ward unless they were taking me for a test or something. So I was limited to the ward, and when I left the room, I had to wear a mask and I had my little ivy pole with me. I got to know all of the people who worked on the unit, and I got to know a couple of the patients because I was walking as much as I could. So to deal with this on the people, surround myself with positivity. I had to have a tough conversation with a couple family members um, to say, I love you all, but if you can't be positive, I, I can't have you come and visit me. That was a really hard thing to do, but I knew I had to do it for myself. Say, am I answering the question? I feel like I'm. Yeah, you're doing great. And I think talking through exactly like what are the things that you did that got you through that? You So the, the diagnosis is almost it's a blur because it moves so quickly. And then you quickly transition into A, journaling. Yes. B, I need to build a mental environment that's filled with positivity. It's like, and if you can't be positive, you can't be around me. Jack, well, Jack brought me some things that meant a lot to me. But my doctor, I had this, I have this great team of oncologists. 
the one that I still see now, he said, this is going to be your home and you need to make, to make it like that. Bring in pictures, bring in blanket, bring in music, you know. And that's what I did also. And that was fun, too, because I'd have family and friends that, would, that couldn't come visit because they lived far away, but they'd send me pictures. And I had a whole wall of pictures up. The things that reminded me of what I value, what I support, the people I love, the people I get to be with was great. My faith was another big part for me. Um, I'm Jewish. And, and the hospital I go to is a Baptist hospital. The chaplain was always like, now, are you okay with this? I, I, welcome, I welcome all faith, please. Yes. I'll take but, any help. But, it's like, but I still can remember one of the most vivid memories is the night I was, um, it looked like I was going into systemic infection and they were getting ready to have some pretty brutal treatment they were doing. And I was just reading from, I, actually, oddly enough, the book of Job is one of my favorite books of the um, Torah and reading there and the moonlight came right in where I was sitting and I suddenly felt bathed in moonlight. And I thought, okay, I don't know how I'm going to frame believing this, but I suddenly felt like it was almost like a message from God of I'm with you. I'm just with you. Just know that I'm with you. And that's what carried me through a lot too. I'm not someone who thinks that we get, you know, the whole thing, well, God doesn't give you more than you can deal with. I, that might make some people feel good, but I, it's not, doesn't ring true for me. I just like to know that I'm supported, and that's how I felt. So when I said that, there was a lot of different ways I got supported. And so you you were diagnosed as in remission from the leukemia? Yes, uh, and I've, I've never had a relapse, thank goodness. I went into remission after, while I was still in the hospital, after my first round of chemotherapy stayed there had um, three rounds of outpatient chemotherapy and then a little over two years of oral chemotherapy. So there's, you know, along the way as I got better, I could do more things. I could get out more in public and do things. But, you know, it's been a life of uncertainty ever since then because you never know. I'm now at the point where I go and I get tested once a year to make sure the leukemia isn't bad. But how you know, long was the process from diagnosis to remission? Uh, for me, it was, gosh, it really wasn't very long. Um, I think it was about four weeks total from when I started my chemotherapy to when they said, you know, you're in remission. And then, and then from then it was rebuilding um, the red and white blood cells white blood cells in particular, and platelets. It, uh, it, it still amazes me. How about the second bout, um, which is... Um, is recent. Yeah. And I, I am one fortunate woman. So I was diagnosed with early stage lung cancer, uh, non-small cell lung cancer. So it was a fluke that I got diagnosed. I had just recovered from bronchitis and feeling great, developed a very high fever. One afternoon, woke up the next morning, high fever. No other signs of anything. Something just felt wrong. I thought, other than the fever, something's not right. I went to an urgent care center that happily is tied also to the, the hospital, the healthcare system that I'm in. The doctor there took a chest x-ray thinking, 
you know, maybe it's walking pneumonia. But, but by the time I got there, the fever was gone. No sign of anything. Uh, so I was glad he did that. Uh, the radiologist, when they read it, noted this one spot in my upper right lobe. Went from there, multiple tests. Uh, but pretty early on, they said it's, it's lung cancer. So I had multiple tests to confirm it. But I had surgery in early January to remove that upper right lobe. Happily, all the, the lymph nodes that came back was part of this. I'm cancer-free. I don't need any further treatment. I, I am closely monitored. I'm, right now, I'm every three months. I go in for more tests. The oddest part is on the same afternoon that I found out that I had lung cancer, that morning, um, my husband Jack found out he had prostate cancer. I, I can tell you that night, we were both sitting at home, just sitting there, just thinking, how did this happen? What, you know, just feeling shocked. And I said, we have to get out of the house because we're just going to sit and we're not going to be able to process this. We have to go somewhere else. We went out somewhere we liked for dinner where we knew we could just sit quietly with our thoughts and talk to each other. We spent the weekend doing the things we like. We love playing golf. You know, the whole time was just being shocked of, you, know, you might hit the ball and it's like, what, do, what does this mean? Am I going to be here in six months? And working through it. So by the end of Sunday night, we really had, I mean, I can't say we were completely, you know, this is fine, this is good, we're going to be great. But we had at least processed, how is this possible we each have cancer, different cancer, and we find out together. That's beyond surreal. And what are we going to do? But again, for me, that whole process, that's where I thought of my marathon training, of you have to trust the work that you put into it beforehand. I had to trust I had good doctors. I was getting the right tests. And I do, I, I, I've been very fortunate with the doctors I have. And getting to the point of, okay, this is what we're going to do. It's big enough. We need to remove your lobe. We could always do some chemotherapy, but that's not the way to go here. By this point, I think I've gotten better at just dealing with what's in front of me. Once I can work through that process of sh and shock, process the shock, I can take those steps and go through. I knew from my primary care physician what to do to set myself up for successful surgery and recovery, and I did that. What I needed to do afterwards, that it was going to be an issue, and still is in some ways, but what I can do to keep getting, helping get better. What's amazing is when you spoke of the, the second bout with the lung cancer, the first thing you said was how grateful you were. Of, of all the things that have gone on, and for the very first thing for you to say is how grateful you are when you discover that you have cancer for the second time. Obviously, the, the mental approach and the, the mindset is really important for just, just, just your mental well-being. Do you think there's any medical benefit? Do you think, there's, do you think your attitude has an impact on your, your successful recovery from two cancers? It's funny, until you just asked me that question, I don't know that I would have said for sure, but yes, I think that's that's part of my, my DNA is you've got to deal with it. You can't, you can't gloss over it and just put on a happy face. You've got to truly deal with it. But I've always thought of myself as like a cork caught in waterfalls. You know, I might sink a bit, but I float back up. And so throughout all of this, I, I thought, again, you know, part of you is always going to think, okay, so what if it is, what if you're going to die in six months? What would you do? Kind of a thing. But I thought, I'm already living the life that I would live. 
I'm doing the things I want to do. I might do more time with family, but I know that that's made a difference. And the one thing I have learned is not to get myself too over-enthusiastic and accept, I will try things, but don't push yourself too hard. I think that helped me every point along the way of dealing with it in the front end. And then on the back end, dealing with what I needed to do to, to get to the next step. I want to come back real quickly to that New York Times comment. Mm-hmm. Because in that comment, you use the phrase that that story helped you learn about recovering our faith in ourselves. Can you talk about what it meant for you to lose faith in yourself and, and how you recovered it? I really beat myself up a lot when I was first diagnosed because I, I'd been sick for two, I, I mean, I had signs of things for two months. And by the time I finally did get help, I mean, again, I, I was incredibly, incredibly sick. And my doctors who don't believe in telling people this said, you were probably a week or two away from dying if you hadn't gotten treatment. And that really made me question myself. You know, here I am trying to be this force in the world, if you will, this go-getter, I, wanting to always move forward without contemplating what that truly meant for me. And that I was almost, I was ignoring myself to push myself forward. So I spent a lot of time dealing with that, that I put myself, I was sick, I was very sick. I'm not, I didn't make myself have leukemia, but because I ignored the signs, I put myself in a point where my health was in far greater jeopardy. And having to regain a sense of myself, of who I am truly in being, as I said, I think of myself as a strong person. Well, being a strong person doesn't mean you ignore the obvious weaknesses that are there. You deal with them. And that was the hardest thing for me to really embrace is the, the holistic view of what it means to be strong. It's not just, you know, ooh, yeah, I can tough it out through this. It's seeing something really that seems insurmountable, acknowledging it, and deciding, can I surmount that? Can I make it happen? That's what I had to, I would say rebuild, but it was really probably for the first time in my life that I understood what it truly meant to be a strong person and embrace all the aspects of that and not run away from them or deny them. So it was that faith in myself and I got to the point I can show one, one small story that happened around the same time as that letter to the editor. Ashley was living in, in Washington, D.C. and dating the man who's now my son-in-law. I had gone to visit them, and it was my first real big trip anywhere. And there was an exhibit at uh, one of the museums I wanted to see. And we walked from there, and we walked over to the Thomas Jefferson Memorial. And I was feeling really strong and good. And, and of course, my son-in-law is like, don't you think we should drive over there? I was like, I can walk. I can do it. We got over there and we started to walk back. I was like, I can't walk back to the car. I just, I can't. And I didn't try to make myself. In the past, I would have said, I'll just keep going. I didn't. But my favorite part was how Ashley did. Ashley, of course, was very concerned. But, you know, I can't walk back. And my son-in-law treated me with such respect and didn't make me feel like I... I was sick is probably the way to think about it. He just went and got the car and came and got it and it was no big deal. 
But that was a microcosm for me of everything I had learned and the things that I saw in the people around me and how they support me. So I had pushed myself, not thinking I was pushing myself because I felt good. And when I realized I couldn't do it, to be able to say, I can't do this and not feel like I let myself down. Well, that, that's, that's incredible, right? To redefining what it means to be strong. And it doesn't necessarily mean I push through everything. Mm-hmm. It's the ability to look at challenges, be honest about what they are, be positive, but not unrealistic, and push through where you can and pause and acknowledge where you can't and work around it. At some point, it has to be about you. Otherwise, you can't serve all those loved ones that you want to take care of. If you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be able to take care of them. So you can't always push through. Yeah, exactly. Nancy, you've you've been very, very kind to share your story and to, to spend time with me today. Let me ask you a, a question as we wrap things up. If someone's listening today and they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and they think, well, my life's, my life's plan is set, right? Like mm-hmm. where I'm headed is where I'm headed at this point. I can't make any real change uh, at this stage in my life. What, what's something that they could do that would make you proud? Don't give up because things aren't set. Un- until the day that we physically li- cannot do something, don't want to say until we're dead, but until we physically can't, you can do it. You can go to law school. You can run a marathon. You can do those things to test yourself. You're not, you're not caught in the moment that you're in right now. It doesn't matter the size of your dream. What is it you want to do and what are the pieces that it will take to get there? And then what are the steps you will take to get to make it happen? Because it isn't too late. I know it feels, heck, before law school, I would have felt trapped at a certain point of time of, you know, oh gosh, it takes time, it takes money, it takes this. It's mostly deciding you can do it. You really can. It's great advice from someone who's been there. It's one thing to talk it. It's another thing to walk it. You've walked it and are continuing to. Nancy, thank you. Thank you so much for spending time with us today and so many great stories, great advice for those going through similar situations or even dissimilar situations about what it means to be strong. That knowledge of how to get through, it's, it's locked up in real people doing real things, overcoming real obstacles like you. And so sharing that journey is incredibly valuable to people. You're not a movie star. You're not a politician. You're not an award-winning scientist. You're a regular person doing amazing things. And so maybe I can too. I'm a regular person. Maybe I can do amazing things as well. That's the value of this. And I appreciate you sharing everything today. I love your podcast. I, that's what you surround yourself, not just the people, but the stories of people of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love it. So I have to thank you. I am loving, loving your work. I appreciate that. That this this is work that has value in in itself. But thank you for being part of it. For those listening, remember that it's as Nancy said, it's never too late. Thanks for listening. Before you go, I would ask you to please do one thing. Please consider this simple question: Who is the most influential person in your life? 
When you have that answer, I would love to tell your story. You can nominate Your Great Unfamous on Twitter or Instagram at GR8Unfamous. If you want to do it privately, there's a link for that as well. But if you do none of that, at least let this person know what they mean to you. It could mean the world to them. Until the next episode, take care and be kind. Thank you.